I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Can life change with a single letter in the mail? For my guest today, it did. And subsequently, so did the lives of millions of people with various forms of cancer, including breast cancer. The letter in question came from the National Cancer Institute in 1977. The recipient was Dr. Susan Horowitz. The result? The creation of one of the most important cancer drugs that come from a natural product, Taxol, which is isolated from the U-plant. Today, it's given to more than a million patients. As you'll hear, Dr. Horowitz's work, indeed, her incredible curiosity, didn't end there. She's continued to investigate new cancer treatments that leverage natural products. Why? Take triple negative breast cancer. By definition, it's among the most challenging cancers to treat, comprising some 15 to 20% of all breast cancers. These aggressive tumors are treated with a cocktail of chemotherapy drugs, and although many patients have excellent survival following treatment, some patients with specific types of triple negative breast cancer have an incomplete response or even a relapse after a period of remission. Making them even more difficult, triple negative breast cancer tumors are frequently resistant or become resistant to a variety of drugs, increasing their potential to spread to other tissues, a process called metastasis. To address these challenges, some scientists have screened novel chemotherapy drugs against triple negative cells to identify those with superior activity and less toxicity than conventional therapy. The goal? Find new therapeutic options, new drug candidates that they hope may lead to targeted therapies and new combination approaches to counter drug resistance and improve outcomes for patients with aggressive breast cancer. How does this process work? What progress has been made? And how hopeful do the outcomes seem? Dr. Horowitz is the one to ask. Dr. Horowitz is a distinguished university professor and the Rose C. Falkenstein Chair of Cancer Research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Among her many honors, the Warren Alpert Foundation Prize from Harvard Medical School, American Cancer Society's Medal of Honor, the American Association for Cancer Research Award for Lifetime Achievement in Cancer Research. Most recently, Dr. Horowitz earned the 2019 Canada Gadner Award, the country's highest scientific prize. She has served as president of the American Association of Cancer Research. She's also been a BCRF investigator since 2007. This was a remarkable conversation, not only for the science discussed, but also for the role Dr. Horowitz has played in its history. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Susan Horowitz. Dr. Horowitz, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. To begin, congratulations. You were recently named one of seven winners of Canada's Gadner Award. And by my reckoning, you're not even Canadian. That's quite an honor. I am not Canadian, and it is quite an honor. I'm deeply honored. The president of the organization that nominated you said, uh, and I'm quoting, Susan meticulously unraveled the mysteries of one of the world's most important cancer therapeutics. Do you think of yourself that way as a sleuth? Do you feel like a medical detective, a scientific Miss Marple, perhaps? 
Well, that's exaggerating a little bit, but I do, in a way, um, think of these as puzzles, uh, trying to understand as deeply as we can how a drug acts to uh, interact with a cancerous cell. So let's let's talk about those drugs and and that interaction, and you know, of course, having a conversation with you. Um, it, it's impossible not to, you know, start that conversation with uh, your Taxol work, um, which involves using natural products to develop treatments. Why natural products? Um, how did you uh, get there? I, I know a little bit about it. I've, I've read about this story, but I'd love to hear it um, from you directly um, because it sounds remarkable. Um, apparently, one day in 1977, you got a letter, I believe it was, or perhaps a call, but I think it was a letter from the National Cancer Institute? That's correct. I received a letter from the National Cancer Institute requesting that I look at the mechanism of action of Taxol. I had never heard of Taxol, to Mm. be very honest, and there was only one paper in the literature. So you certainly wonder why did the National Cancer Institute call and interact with me. Well, I have had a long-standing interest in natural products as a source of new drugs for the treatment of cancer. And when they had written to me, I had published on a number of natural products. And by natural products, I mean compounds which are isolated from living organisms. Mm. That can be a tree, that can be a bush, that can be a sponge from the ocean, uh, it can be from a bacteria, but those were the kinds of compounds that I was interested in. So I think that's the reason that the National Cancer Institute wrote to me. And uh, as I say, there was only one paper in the literature, and that was written by the two medicinal chemists, um, Drs. Wall and Mansubwani, who had actually isolated this molecule from the bark of the tree, Taxus brevifolia, which is the Western yew. Many of us have this tree or bush actually in our gardens, and um, that is where this drug originally came from. It was from large trees which grow on the West Coast in Washington, Oregon, Northern California. So when I got this drug, um, the first thing I, of course, looked at is the structure. And um, one thing about natural products is that they introduce structures that no chemist would sit down and synthesize. They're quite unusual. Taxol is what I call architecturally complex. Mm. It has many groups in it that aren't seen in other places, So, in other drugs. So it was intriguing. And I had a new graduate student at the time, Peter Schiff, and I said, well, let's look at it. We'll look at it for a month, and if it's interesting, you can use it as your thesis project. If something happens, we'll look for another thesis project. So that's how really I got into the drug. But after that one month, we knew we had something interesting. Yeah, it was a heck of a month, wasn't it? Was. (laughs) (laughs) Why why natural products? So it, it's interesting to me that you already had an interest in that 
aspect of um, you know of research and, and of science, and that that was kind of why uh, the the National Cancer Institute sent you a letter. I'm curious. Do you happen to know? Did they send any other letters out? And perhaps you were the first to respond, or were you the only person they sent the letter to? To your knowledge. To my knowledge, I was the only person they sent the letter to, but I really don't know, to be honest. You know, many people don't realize how important natural products are uh, in determining drugs. Yeah, explain explain that to me, please. Okay, so about 50% of the drugs that Americans take today are either natural products or derivatives of natural products. Um, did you know aspirin, for an example, which everyone takes sometime in their life for a variety of reasons, um, originally was from the willow tree? No, did not know that. Penicillin, which really was so important, you know, at the Second World War and treating diseases, comes from a fungi. Um, the pill, which has changed our world originated from yams, South America. So about 50% of the drugs we take come from natural products. And I've always found that very fascinating and very interesting because it allows you to study not only the chemistry and the biology, but the botany and trying to understand um, how, why and how these nat- natural products are produced. And of course, as we reduce our forests, the Amazon, we're probably getting rid of a lot of drugs, um, which could be important. Do you you think, was it your background in biology that potentially led you to have that interest in natural products, or or was it something else about you or, or the way your mind works that drew you in that direction? Well, there are a lot of different things, of course, that come together. I was a when I was a graduate student, I was studying enzyme kinetics, and I thought I would go on and study enzyme kinetics. But for a number of reasons, I was then looking for a um, part-time work So I, um, when I got my Ph.D. So I was able to get a job in a department of pharmacology at Tufts Medical School. I didn't know anything about pharmacology at that time, really. Um, pharmacology has changed dramatically uh, in the last 40 years, but um, I was sort of thrown into it, and um, I just liked it. I just liked the idea that a small molecule like aspirin uh, can take your headache away. So I stuck with it, and uh, I've made it my personal niche, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Can I ask you a side question? You've said two things on the same vein, in the same vein that raised just a totally separate conversation or, or, or question for me, um, which is twice you've said that you went through with something or, or went forward on something that you knew nothing about. Pharmacology, you just mentioned, and then previously tax law, you, you indicated you hadn't heard about it. Right. For so many of us, that's an impossible task. So many of us feel, well, I, you know, unless I'm an expert in something, I, I can't go forward with it. Um, w- you know, what, what made you go forward on, on two, you know, in so many areas that you didn't perhaps have the exact background on, according to you, but that didn't stand in your way? Well, that's the kind of person I am. I think that it's important to explore new things all the time. 
And uh, when you have an interest in something, I mean, I didn't have an interest in tax all because I didn't know anything about it, <laughs> but um, I was curious. And, um, you know, it came at the right moment when I had a new student looking for a thesis. But I do think it's important for scientists to explore new areas and especially to explore new ways of looking at the same problem. Mm. Too many scientists um, sort of do their PhD thesis over and over again, and you don't want to be that kind of a scientist. You want to be open to new technologies that are arriving every day, and you want to take your problem and use it in that technology. So I think that's important. Uh, for a good scientist. So how does Taxol work? I I realize it's molecules bind to the microtubules in tumor cells, stabilizing them, and ultimately, I believe, um, killing them. Um, But but describe, if you would, for me, what what is that process like, and, and, you know, in in layperson's terms, um, how does it work? Well, just like we have a cytoskeleton, our bones, Every cell in our body has a cytoskeleton. And a component of that cytoskeleton, a very important component, is the microtubule. Because when a cell is going to divide, it's actually the microtubules that pull apart the DNA that's in our nucleus, in our cells, so that each daughter cell gets an equal amount of DNA. So the microtubules have to perform exactly perfectly to get two normal cells. And if you take Taxol, which has a very specific binding site on the microtubule, those microtubules are like paralyzed and they cannot pull the DNA apart and you do not get two normal daughter cells, daughter cells meaning the next generation of cells, and you have a serious problem, and eventually that cell will die. And that is what Taxol does when it binds to that site. It's a very specific site, and then the cell cannot divide properly. And Taxol, of course... uh helps with um, multiple forms of cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer. Were you focused on any particular type of cancer and you then discovered that Taxol worked across multiple forms or you were more looking at cures for, you know, or or ways to address cancer writ large and these were the areas... a way oh, looking for a way to treat cancer at large. I mean, when you start out with a new drug, you never know what's going to happen when you put it into a human. So that is the ultimate test. Will a drug be useful in a patient that has a malignancy? And some of your current work, I understand, focuses on dormancy, the state when cancer cells don't divide. However, we shouldn't be fooled. Even in dormancy, these cells are doing dangerous stuff, like producing inflammatory proteins. Uh, they can make the tumor cells migratory, which, of course, um, that's what you know. Part of what leads to uh, metastatic cancer. Um, describe for me what's the work that you're doing there. 
Well, we're doing two things. Two, we have two projects in the lab, really, that I think are, are, are of interest and which are being supported by the BCRS. Um, one of them has to do with um, drug development. I mean, I've had a lot of experience with Taxol, and I'd like to use that experience to try to develop better drugs. And we need new drugs. Um, particularly for triple negative breast cancer, and why? this is a project. Yeah, why? Why do we need new drugs? We need new drugs because, particularly triple negative breast cancer, there are no no ways of treating this except with chemotherapeutic agents, mm. and you know cells become resistant to drugs. This is a very serious problem one which I'm very interested in. Um, and so we need new drugs to um, overcome some resistance. We need new drugs to make combinations of drugs and combinations of drugs with uh, immunotherapy and with targeted drugs, many of which also use some of the agents such as Taxol uh, to deliver these together. So we do need new drugs with new mechanisms. And uh, since I've had a lot of experience with Taxol, I'm looking for new drugs that might have similar activities with Taxol, but which would not show cross-resistance. And um, this is a project that I'm working on with uh, Haley McDade, Dr. Haley McDade, and also with Amos Smith, who is a colleague from the University of Pennsylvania, who is a synthetic chemist, because he's working with us um, and developing new molecules that may be useful for triple negative breast cancer. And um, we have some metastatic models in cell culture. We look at the ability of um, our cells to migrate through like a jello. Um, a gelatinous matrix to see if they have metastases. As as I said, you really have to move on from cell culture, but it's a very good way of screening, looking for drugs that may be metastatic to inhibit metastases. So this is a whole area of drug development which I'm working on and trying to use my knowledge that I've acquired over many years to help me in developing new agents. And is that one area of work, and then was there a second area that you were going to talk about, or did that uh, encompass both areas? No, I can certainly talk about the second area. It's something I'm very interested in. Yes, please. Um, as I told you, Taxol binds has a binding site on microtubules. Now, we know that microtubules are far more complex than we ever dreamt. <laughs> And one of the things that makes them very complex is that there are many different forms of microtubules. We call them isotypes. So there are many different tubulin isotypes that make up the microtubule. So we know that a tumor, different tumors, have different isotypes in them. And the question that I'm so anxious to answer is, does Taxol or other molecules that interact with microtubules, does it have preference 
for some of the isotypes and then not interact with other isotypes. Mm. This has been a burning question for me and has been very difficult to uh, answer. But now we are able to clone and express the individual isotypes so that my goal is to have recombinant tubulant isotypes in the laboratory so that we can study the interaction of taxol with these different isotypes. And this is very exciting now. We're really making progress on this. And I'm able to do this because of the funding that I received from BCRF. This is difficult research. It takes time. It takes tenacity. I work with Dr. Cha Ping Yang on this problem, who can look at a very challenging problem and not get discouraged and continue to work on it. And we are making progress. So this would really be um, a wonderful thing for not just me, but for many scientists who are interested in tubulin and the interaction of drugs with this, uh, with different compounds. So we have to look at tumors and we have to determine which isotypes are in that tumor and then ask, will Taxol interact well with those isotypes? And you know, these drugs, Taxol particularly, I'm sure anyone who's taken the drug can tell you this, has side effects which are unpleasant. If you use a drug in an instance when you know it is not going to be successful, all the patient gets from this is the side effects. Mm. So we want to be more specific in who we give the drug to by understanding the different isotypes in the, in the tumor. So this is a big project. Uh, we are making progress slowly but surely, <laughs> and I hope to have these different recombinant tubulin isotypes to study, not just for me, but for, you know, the scientific community. Yeah, you, you know, you just hit on two points that uh, I hear so frequently in these conversations. One is um, the, the ability not to get discouraged uh, seems to be a genetic consistency among <laughs> among the top scientists uh, because there there is there's so much room for um, and and I've had some of uh, my guests describe it, it's not it, it's never it's not failure they don't consider when when uh, experiments or, or research doesn't work the way they might have hypothesized they don't even think of it necessarily as failure it's stepping stones and, and learning towards the next stage that's right but it can be discouraging. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. I, but uh, it, it seems that, right. that many of you uh, lack that gene, or or it's a it's a recessive gene, maybe at, at, at best. <laughs> we try to we try to keep it recessive, and we try to keep it recessive for all the people who, with whom we work, yeah. because um, that's really very important to keep up everybody's spirits in the lab and really believe that, uh, you know, progress can be made. And so tie that in, you, you were discussing how important this research could be, um, you know, for you, of course, but also for other scientists. Um, translate that then for me 
down to the patient level. Is this where you are talking about the discovery of, um, of, of new treatments, of, of different types of treatments, and by doing your work, you have the potential to almost feed a, a family or a, a big gathering of scientists who then can go and, and take some of your work and, and expand on it? Is that, how, is that how you see it? Well, I see it in different ways. Um, for an example, we know that 50% of the patients, let's say in a, with ovarian cancer, who get taxol respond to it, and 50% do not. Mm. And we don't have any idea why 50% do and 50% don't. So one thought that I had was the possibility that the isotypes are different in these different patient populations, and could that be partially responsible for why some patients don't respond to the drug? So we already have evidence that one of the isotypes doesn't interact well with Taxol. We've done that in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. And this could possibly give us, I mean, this is not going to be you cure 100% by any means, but it gives us an in, a more understanding of how to treat patients. And of course, the development of new drugs, natural product origin, really can help patients who are resistant to the drugs that are available, or you hope that a new drug that you find is going to be better than Taxol with less side effects. Mm -hmm. All of these things have to come together. Understood. And when when you say something like, you know, you might not get, you you, you certainly won't get or might not get to 100%, um, one can still imagine if you're at 50% right now, um, you know, what, what does a 10% improvement look like? And, you know, when, when you're talking about 10% of a big number, um, that even that's a lot of people or 20%. So any, I, I assume from your point of view, any improvement is improvement. And unfortunately, because the denominator is such a big number, um, you know, the, the, the improvement even by, you know, small percent can mean impacting a large number of people. Yeah. And a decrease in side effects can really affect a lot of people. Yeah. So these are the things that we're working on in the lab and uh, trying, trying to make progress with. So if that is a look forward, um, I'd like to close the conversation. And I don't usually close by taking a look backward. Usually I try to you know, close by looking forward. That's generally where these, <laughs> these things go. But, but there's one more aspect about your personal story that um, just made me so curious and interested. And um, I'd love to, to close there. Um, we've been discussing, you were a pioneer, and that's my word, not yours, um, in the use of natural products in fighting cancer. Um, but by, by my math, you were a pioneer even before that. You graduated with a degree in biology in 1958 and then a PhD in biochemistry. I can't imagine that your field was overflowing with women <laughs> at that time. What inspired you, and what was it like to be a woman biologist then? Um, You were right. It was not overflowing with women at that time, and I could tell you many stories. Um, When I actually went to Bryn Mawr with the idea that I would major in history, 
I don't come from a family of scientists at all. And um, when I arrived, I had to take a science course. That was a requirement. And I thought, well, I'll take it the first year and get it out of the way, and then I can study what I like. Um, But actually, it turned out to be quite different. I took biology. I loved it. I changed my major. um, And that's, you know, I really enjoyed it tremendously. I majored in biology and minored in chemistry. And um, as I say, it's what I wanted to do. And then I started looking for jobs, actually, after my junior year, thinking I would, I lived in Boston. I'd, my family was from Boston. I would come back. And um, really, there was nothing interesting at all. Um, I was offered a job uh, at a company to take the dyes from the lipstick and put them in the eyes of rabbits to see if they were allergic to them. And that certainly wasn't what I wanted to do. So I started looking at for graduate schools. And, you know, some of the graduate schools that I talked to, um, I would talk to a professor and afterwards I'd say, oh, thank you so much. Could you tell me where the ladies' room is? And they'd look at me and say, ladies' room? Well, maybe one in the basement. Hmm. This happened all the time. Wow. So chemistry departments just didn't think about women at that time. Um and then other places said to me, are you sure you want to get a degree in biochemistry? Uh, maybe you should get a degree in zoology, and then you could work at a museum. Mm. So at that time, um, Brandeis University was starting its biochemistry department. It was brand new. I went there to look at the department, and... Uh, I was delighted. There were two women on the faculty. This was the very beginning. I was in the first class. Mary Ellen Jones was an assistant professor. She was married. She had children. Um, and Helen Van Benakis was also an assistant professor, married and had children. And I don't mean to say that you can't be a good scientist if you're not married or you don't have children, but that's what I was looking for and I was interested in <laughs> my own personal life. Yes. Uh, and so I was attracted to that. And so I went. And it was one of the best things I ever did. And I assume they had a women's room already built since they had uh, two <laughs> faculty. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, history's loss and the loss of one more historian was certainly uh, science's gain. <laughs> Uh, thank thank you. you. Thank you for this conversation, and obviously, thank you for all the work that you have done. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you. That was my conversation with Dr. Horowitz. My thanks to Dr. Horowitz for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.